Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for the joy of gathering together as a church this morning, and it is a joy we know not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of who you are and what you have done. And especially as we reflect back over this Christmas season, help us to remember that we do this because before the beginning of time, you purposed to send your son, Jesus, into the world to save his people from their sins. And as recipients of this blessing, and on behalf of this congregation, I say thank you. We pray this morning for the churches gathered across our community and around the world, for those who are preaching the gospel, that you would bless their labors and make your name known through them. We pray especially for our brother and sister, Marshall and Wesley Gallagher, and for Hope Community Church as they prepare to install Marshall tonight, that their church would succeed by your definition of success, that the gospel would take root and spread like a fire, and that you would sustain and give them all that they need. Thank you that they and we can gather openly and at liberty this morning. But we pray especially for our brothers and sisters who are gathered in secret, for those who are in hiding from worldly powers who would seek to do them harm, and ask that you would sustain them in the face of such hardships. As we've seen in the news in recent weeks, we pray especially for Pastor Wang Yi and his wife, Zhang Rong, who are in China, and who, along with a hundred other brothers and sisters, have been arrested for subverting state power. We are grateful for your faithfulness to them and for theirs to you, and we commend you, commend them into your hands, even as we pray that you would open the leaders of China's eyes to the truth and glory of who you are. For that matter, we pray for those that you have placed in leadership over us and over this country. For those that don't know you, we pray that you would save them. For those that do and for them all, we pray that they would govern wisely and well. Help us to be good stewards of the citizenship you have given us here, remembering that as you teach us in your word, you made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek you and perhaps feel their way toward you and find you. Now we pray for Redeemer. Words fail to properly express our gratitude for the work you have done 
are doing and have yet to do here. So we pray that our lives would exemplify a gratitude for that. We thank you for the gift that you have given this church and its elders and its staff and its volunteers for all those who serve here. Help us to serve with all wisdom and discernment. We pray for our gospel witness as a church to a watching world that we would be bold, unflinching, and unfailingly gracious and gentle to all those whom we encounter that need you, not only our friends, but especially our enemies. And as we come near to the end of the year, we continue to entrust you with this church, which is yours. We thank you for how you have blessed the Our Shared Future campaign. Help us to steward it well. And finally, I pray for the preaching of your word this morning. I am a frail instrument, but your word is unshakable and unchanging. So I ask that by your spirit, you would speak through me clearly, powerfully, and compellingly. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds and hearts to know you, that your word would find fertile soil in our hearts, that it would lay deep roots and bear much fruit in us as you conform us to the image of your son. If there is anyone here this morning that does not know you, we ask that you would do the mighty saving work that only you can do, because we know that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And for those here that do know you, may your word be a refining fire, searching us to the uttermost, rooting out, exposing, destroying any sin that may be found there. Father, forgive us for when we fall short of you. Help us now. And it is in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning and happy New Year's Eve Eve to you, or in honor of, in honor of Stephen Carlson, happy New Year's Adam. I support your efforts to set a trend. Um, but here we are. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Um, as Jamie said, my name is Austin Shaver, and just let me say thank you again for the very warm and gracious welcome you've extended to my family and me in our few weeks here with you already. Um, you, have, you have been so gracious to us, and we look forward to getting to know you over this year and sharing more about what the Lord is doing in our lives and hearing what he's doing in yours. Uh, but this morning, we have far more important things to talk about than us, so we will do that. But as Jamie and I were talking about what I might preach on today, we, we bonded over our mutual dislike of sermons that try to baptize New Year's Eve resolutions and make it all cute. One, I can't keep New Year's Eve resolutions, so I don't make them. Uh, but two, you just end up sounding silly a lot of times. Um, but the point remains that this time of year is one of the few times that we might be prompted to stop just for a moment to take stock of our lives and think, where, where have I been? Where am I going? Where would the Lord want me to go? And in a culture and in an age where everything is designed to keep you from ever just stopping to think, that's actually a small gift that we should take advantage of today. So this morning, I'm not going to be preaching on 10 New Year's resolutions to give you your best life now, but I do want us to look at a text that I think calls us to something we should resolve to do every day. No matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, if you don't yet know Jesus, if you do know him, or if you do know him and you find that you come to the end of another year and it's still just hard and life still just hurts and sin is still there and you think, I don't know if I can make it through another one. And friend, I believe the Lord has a word for you this morning. So if you haven't already, take your Bible and open it to Philippians chapter 3. 
Philippians 3, it's on page 981 if you're using one of the church Bibles. And that's where we're going to be this morning. Now, since we are deviating from Jamie's series in 2 Timothy, I think it's always important to take a brief moment and take stock of what's going on in the particular book or letter we're in so that we don't just rip it out of context. So Philippians, a couple of uh, points we should know as we get into it. One, it's a very encouraging book. Unlike so many of Paul's letters that are written to churches in crisis that are battling just some crazy sins, the church at Philippi is actually doing well. There don't seem to be any obvious emergencies going on right now. They have their issues, but the advantage for us is Paul takes us into the deep waters of the Christian life, and so we get to see what that looks like. Secondly, Paul is writing this while he's in prison. Now, if you know your New Testament, Paul is usually writing while he's in prison. So if you're ever in Bible trivia, that's a good answer. Paul's in prison. Just go with that. Um, But don't miss that, because I think it's easy for us here with 2,000 years of hindsight to look at Paul as the great hero of the faith, right? We know what he did. But put yourself in his shoes. He's rotting in a Roman jail. I would have to think there was at least a moment where he wondered, Lord, was this really what you wanted me to do? Did I choose rightly? Because this doesn't seem all that great. But there he was being faithful. So as we read what he shares with us this morning, remember that that's where he is, because I think it gives a little extra punch to what he tells us to do. So what has Paul said that brings him to this moment in chapter 3? Well, he starts in chapter 1, reflecting on his imprisonment, and he makes the famous statement, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he looks at some people who serve as examples of the Christian life, but then he says, you're going to be opposed at every turn. But he says, I would give up every privilege I have for the sake of knowing my Lord. And so it's with all of that in mind that we come to this morning's text. And I think the the main point of it is, the, the main point that you should take away if you remember nothing else is this, that as Christians, we belong to Jesus and we must strive to become like him. Now, there's nothing complex or magic about that. That's the basic truth of the Christian life. But we must remember this. We have to know that because Paul's going to give us one truth this morning and one command. And that truth is this, that if you are Christian, Jesus has made you his own. And then secondly, you are called to imitate those who look like Christ. So that's our roadmap this morning. It's very simple. That's where we're going. So let's start with point one, looking at our text. If you are a Christian, Jesus has made you his own. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So when he says there, not that I have already obtained this, that's why it's always so important to set the passage in context because we're kind of catching him mid-thought. What is he saying I have not already obtained? Well, to get that, we need to look back at verse 8 through 11 because it's just one long sentence. And he says this, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So when Paul says, I have not already obtained this, He's encompassing all of that there, but he's essentially saying, I've not yet been made totally like Christ in his death. I'm I'm still working towards that end. So back to verse 12, he says, I've not obtained that, nor have I been made perfect. So since he's not attained that in Christ, then he's still not perfect. Let me look at an aside here. You may have heard a false teaching, and it's called different things if you've ever heard of Christian perfectionism or Keswick's movement. Um, It's this idea that 
as a Christian, you need a second blessing that will make you morally perfect in this life. Now, this verse right here and some other passages like Romans 7 and 1 John make clear that that's not the case. But this morning, if you've been carrying that burden of thinking, I have to be perfect, friend, lay that down here. You can shed that burden because Paul says, you're not there yet. I'm not there yet. Now, flip the coin. Does that mean, excellent, I'm free to sin at leisure? No, no, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. Because look at what comes next. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see, just because he's not yet gotten there, he doesn't take it as an excuse to stop pursuing Christ and holiness. But don't, don't rush past this little half sentence because if you do, you're going to miss probably the most important thing in this whole passage here. Look how he says it. If you take notes, circle these two words. But, but I press on to make it my own because, that's the other one, circle, but and because, Christ Jesus has made me his own. So one important thing to know when you're reading any of Paul's letters is that he often divides them into two fancy words, and they're just called the, the indicatives and the imperatives. And all that means is he's going to spend part of the time talking about who God is, what God has done, and who you are in him. So those are the indicatives. That's what that is. And then he's going to turn around and say, now because of that, you do this. And those are the imperatives. It is so important that you get that order right. Because if you don't, it's going to sound like, I just, I've just got to do more. I've got to work harder. And you're going to feel defeated when that's the exact opposite of what he's trying to convey. And we see that in its fullness here because he says he presses on. Why? To earn what Christ has already promised? No. He says he does it because Christ has already made him his own. Friends, this is good news. This is why the gospel is such good news, because it frees us from the tyranny of every other religion, every other worldview that ultimately just boils down to do more, try harder, be better, over and over and over again, and gives you nothing else. But the Bible says, do this because Jesus has already done it. He's already secured this for you. So because that is true, what does Paul do? Well, look at verses 13 and 14. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So he tells us then, because that's true, what does he do? Now, he describes it as one thing, but he really breaks it up into two. He says first that he forgets what lies behind. You know, Paul realizes that to focus on what's to come, he has to forget what lies behind him. I took piano lessons growing up. I still can't play the piano, but I took lessons for a long, long time. And anytime I was getting ready for a recital or a performance, my teachers would tell me something like, you know, Austin, if you make a mistake, don't try to fix it. Just keep, keep going, keep playing. Because they knew if I stopped and got fixated on what I'd done wrong, I would try to fix it, then I would stumble again. It would just, it would just be a disaster the whole rest of the way. Now, our lives in Christ are much the same. Because if you're continually looking back on what went wrong before, that's where you're going to fix your focus, and you're going to miss on what Christ is doing. Now, if you think you've just been too wicked, consider Paul. He killed people for being Christians. Now, I don't know you this morning, but I doubt that's your story. I don't think anybody struggled with just murder sprees uh, before they got here. If you did, welcome. We'll talk to you about that, too. Uh, but, but if Paul can say, forget what lies behind, you can, too. Now, it doesn't mean we don't repent. It doesn't mean we don't learn from our sin. It means we remember that it's been forgiven in Christ. And if you say, Austin, you don't know how bad I am. You don't know how deep 
this sin goes. You're right, I don't. And I don't have to. What I do have to know is what God has promised us, and it's this in Psalm 103. He says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. For as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I love how Carl Truman puts it in his book, Grace Alone. He says this, God's response to my sin is not simply to forget it or act as if it never happened. No, his response is Christ. God's favor to me is Christ. God's love for me is Christ. So he doesn't just let it go. He buried it at the cross to forget forever. Now, on the other hand, we must be careful also like Paul to not look back on our spiritual successes. Maybe that's not, maybe your problem is that your sin is one is thinking, I'm pretty good. I'm all right. Look at how far I've come. No, you haven't. You're not there yet. Paul wasn't either. Um, but don't look back constantly and allow it to puff you up to think you've really made it somewhere. No, in all things, we forget what lies behind. And then the second thing Paul says to do, we do that so that we can strain forward and press on. And the idea there is exactly what it sounds like. He knows that all kinds of circumstances, the difficulties of life, the temptations of sin, the opposition of Satan in the world, all these things are going to press against us. And we're going to have to fight and struggle and press on through it. But what is he pressing toward? Because that's really key to getting this here. He says, to what lies ahead, which is the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He is doing all of this to get to where Jesus wants him to be. Now, why would he do that? This is why it's so important to know what's come before. He's doing this, and he can do this because Jesus has already promised it to him. He's not running for some aimless, undefined goal, just kind of seeing wherever life takes him. No, he's, he says, I'm running towards what Jesus has already secured and promised to me. And that makes all the difference. Some of you might be either old or young enough to, to know the 1994 children's football classic, Little Giants. Anybody remember Little Giants? Yeah. Okay, so if you haven't seen it, it's okay. It's a kid's football movie. It's wonderful. There's a little boy named Johnny in the movie. And the whole movie, he's terrified of getting hit, which I can relate to. I didn't want to get hit, ever. Um, but we also learned that his dad is a business guy who's very busy. He's on the road a lot, and Johnny misses him. So they're at the big game, and the quarterback calls a play that's going to involve tossing the ball to Johnny, and he's going to run. Because you see, what the quarterback knows that Johnny doesn't is that his dad has just showed up at the game, and he's standing at the back of the end zone. So they start the play. She tosses him the ball, and he freaks out. What do I do? And she just points, and she says, you run to him. So what happens? You know, of course, he turns into Barry Sanders. He's dodging everybody. He scores. He gets a big hug. It's very wonderful. Everybody cries. It's great. Now, it's kind of silly, but that's really a lot of what our life in Christ is because you see, if you've spent any time as a Christian at all, you know, life's going to hurt. You're going to get hit with some things that really hurt. There's going to be sin and temptation. There's going to be loss, sickness, death, troubles on your job, financial difficulties, whatever. We could spend all morning cataloging all the, all the hurts we've experienced. It's the nature of the fallen world we live in. But you know what the hope is, right, Christian? It's here. It's right here this morning. Jesus has made us his own and has promised to bring us home. Now, what a difference that makes because, you know, if, if, you're, if you're just stumbling through life, you don't have a goal, you don't know where you're going, then, then it's easy to get knocked off course. You're very tentative, you're stumbling around. But what do you do if you do know where you're going? And even better, that the God of the universe has shown you the way, has made the way, and has promised to bring you to him. What do you do? 
you run. And it doesn't matter what comes because you know where you're going and you fix your eyes on him. Now, is that just me offering some little feel-good statement to get you through? No, that's straight from the heart of God because hear what he promises in Romans 8. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that phrase, anything else in all creation, in the Greek, means anything else in all creation. It means anything that comes up in your life. Whatever has happened, God has said, this will not take you from me. Nothing that the devil or this world, or this life throws at you, will separate you from the love of Christ. That's why we can run. When life gets hard, we would look to God and say, what do I do? Run to him. You run to him, because he is there, and he is waiting. So that's the truth this morning. That, that's the foundation on which we build this, is that in Christ, God has made you his own. So because that is true, remember, that's the order here. Because that is true, now, what do we do? And that's our second point. We imitate those who look like Christ. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So in saying it to brothers, he reminds us he's talking to believers. He says, join in imitating me. Paul says to them, look, if you don't know who Christ is, if you don't know what it looks like to live like him, then you imitate me and you follow my example. Now, that's a, that's a pretty bold claim, right? But let me ask you, Christian, examine your life this morning, as 2 Corinthians 13, 5 tells us to do. If someone comes to you in desperation, their question is, sir, ma'am, who is this Jesus? What, what does he look like? How, how do I live like him? Could you... Could I say to them, like Paul, it's okay. You watch me. You live as I live. You speak as I speak. You do what I do, and you will see Jesus. God, forgive me for all the days of my life that I couldn't say that to somebody. That's what we're called to do. Show them Jesus. Show them Jesus. Now, in light of what we've learned, why, why would he say that? Because he's already told us, you're in Christ. He's going to bring you home. Do, do we really need to do this? That's hard. That's hard. Yeah, yeah, we do. And he gives us two reasons, a negative and a positive. And that's what he's going to spend the rest of the time talking about, of why we need to imitate those who look like Christ. First, let's look at the negative reason. In verses 18 and 19, he says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is why Paul calls us to imitate those who look like Christ. He knows that there, there are so many who, look at how he describes them in verse 18, who will walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. But look at the response that generates in him. It's not anger, it's not bitterness, it's tears. And that should be the response in us because I know in my life, 
my response to, to sin and sinners, because I stopped looking at myself, is to just kind of want to get mad and annoyed. Like, what's wrong with you? Straight up. But Paul remembers the old saying that we should too. There but for the grace of God go I. Right? Anybody in here want to put forth the idea that you deserve what God has given you? I don't. So when I see the lost world around me, it shouldn't be anger. It shouldn't be bitterness. It should be a broken heart in their need for Jesus. And as if we needed more motivation, their end otherwise is terrifying. Their end is destruction. Now that is a depressing but true picture of life apart from Christ. And that destruction, as we know, is a place called hell, which is eternity experiencing nothing but the wrath of God. I know you're so glad you came to church on New Year's Eve Eve, uh, but you should be because it gets so much better from here because the, that's the negative reason we should imitate those who are Christ. But what's the positive reason? Because there's a really good one. Because you see, he says in verses 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now there's a lot happening here and I wanna move quickly. Um, as he, he changes the focus, this is a negative reason, now is the positive reason, why we should imitate those who look like Christ. Um, I want to focus on one key word in this passage, and it's the word is, because it changes everything. What does he say? Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, two hugely important details here. First, that Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. Not that it will be, not that it might be, but that it is right now, today. If you are in Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. Now, you might look around and say, have you seen my life? It doesn't look a whole lot like heaven right now. No, it, it may not, but it's because you're not in heaven, but your citizenship is there. And why is that good? Well, that's good because a citizen gets to go home. When they come home, they are welcomed into their country, and our home is in heaven with Christ. Secondly, I love how Paul uses this language of citizenship to just citizenship to describe our situation because maybe you've looked around sometimes as a Christian and you've wondered, what am I doing here? God, why, why have you left me in this life? What, what's the point of all? I feel so out of place. Well, it's because you are. You are a citizen of another kingdom. And that might prompt you to ask, well, then what should I do with, with this time here that you've left me with? Well, that's a great question. What is our relationship to this world? And as we think through this, you know, why are we here individually? Why are we here collectively as Christians? And we think, okay, maybe we're left here as a conquering army. We're, we're supposed to slaughter the infidels and, and make them follow Jesus. No, don't do that. Um, in fact, I can say emphatically, don't do that. Why? We'll turn over to John 18. We'll look there just very briefly. Do you remember in John 18, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying. It's the night before the crucifixion, and he's there. And, and the guards have finally come to arrest him. Now, picture that. Don't, don't be so comfortable with this passage that you forget the God of the universe is about to be arrested. Surely, this is the moment that his followers are going to take up the weapons and fight. They're going to conquer. They're going to slay the enemies. This, this has to be it, right? No. That's what Peter thought. Look at verse 10. He says, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But what did Jesus tell him? Simon Peter, put away your sword. Oh, he also put the servant's ear back on, which how awkward do you feel if you're that guy? You showed up to arrest Jesus and he slapped your ear back on your head. I, I've got to figure he just kind of like faded back into the woods and, and left the situation. Um, but the next morning, Jesus is being 
questioned by Pilate. And you remember what Pilate says? Are you the king of the Jews? What does Jesus say in response? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So no, we are explicitly not a conquering army. Now the beauty of this is it frees us to obey commands like Matthew 5, which says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Friends, Jesus doesn't need us to defend his honor. He's quite capable of that on his own. He says, you are free to love. Even, no, especially those who hate you. Do that. Okay, so we're not a conquering army. Maybe, maybe we're undercover spies. We're like Jason Bournes for Jesus. Or as I told the first service, we'll be Nicene ninjas. Or episodic assassins. I can do this all day. We'll just keep going. What else? Green Berets. Green Berets from Berea. I like that. Somebody said that one. That's good. Uh, but no, we're not called to be undercover spies either. Because Matthew 5, 16 says what? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So if we're not, we're not a conquering army, we're not undercover spies, what does it mean then in this life to look like Christ? Well, Paul gives us a direct answer in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Here it comes. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There it is. That's the whole point, the whole reason why we are left here to be ambassadors on behalf of the king. And make no mistake, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world are very much at enmity with one another. But we are not sent as his shock troops. We are not sent as his spies. We are sent as his ambassadors. And we have a mission of peace or a ministry of reconciliation as the Bible describes it. And for you history buffs, this is a genuine offer of peace, not a phony one like Chamberlain brought back from his Munich meeting with Hitler saying peace in our time. No, this is real. This is guaranteed by the king. So what, what is that ministry? What, what, what message do we have to offer? It's the gospel. That's where it comes right back to all the time. It's the gospel of who God is and the good news that Jesus the king came and loved so much that he died for his people. He shed his blood. He bore their punishment. He died on the cross. He was raised to life again. And he declares that if you will repent of your sin, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not me. That is his offer through me to you. And that's what we have to offer the world. But don't get lost in thinking the world. That's too big to think about sometimes. That's what you have to offer to those in your household. That's what you have to offer to the thousands of people that live right down this road. It's what you have to offer to your coworkers, to your friends. You are the ambassador that has been sent to them. You are going to see people. You are going to be in places that Jamie, that the elders, that the staff here will never get. You're the ambassador God has sent. Go, tell them, make this offer because the other side of that is one day the king himself is coming and he will be bringing a conquering army and he will be coming as judge and the day of mercy will pass. But friends, whoever you're talking to, if they're drawing breath, it is not too late. No one is yet beyond the reach of the gospel. 
Jesus' arm is long and it is strong and it is sure. So this morning, allow me to fill that role for just one moment. If you are here and you don't know this, Jesus, I beg you, repent of your sin and believe in him. He is a good and gracious king. Oh, I know him and he's worthy and he's worth it. I love what Mike Cosper says in his book, Rhythms of Grace. Hear how he describes this. He says, the whole mess of our lives is transformed in Christ from corrupted to glorious, from ashes to beauty. The addict who can only cry out in miserable faith, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, is just as accepted by the Father as the cleanest cut Christian pastor. There are no mountains to climb to seek God's presence, no gates to unlock, no feats to accomplish. There is only Jesus who throws wide heaven's gates and says, all, all who are thirsty, come and drink. So this morning, if you're looking for not a new year's resolution, but a new life resolution, let it be this. Resolve to know that Jesus Christ has made you his own. And because of that, your daily aim should be to become more like him. And if you've come to drink of Jesus, you know where you are his. And you're wondering, how can I put some feet to this? How can I become like Christ? What can I look to? Well, that's exactly what we're here for. That's why Redeemer exists, is to point you to Jesus. And if you've been here long enough to go through the new members class, or if you just listened to Jamie's preaching week in, week out, you know that there are five specific things that we want every member of Redeemer to engage in. And there's no magic to them. It's just what the Word says to do, but to help you grow in Christ-likeness, to pursue Him, to become like Him, we want to see you doing five things. One is personal discipleship. And that just means that you are doing the things you need to do to know him. That's spending time in the word, reading it, memorizing it, meditating on it, praying, repenting, serving, obeying. Think about all that you've done in your life to prepare for your job or your education or whatever you do. You probably spent years getting ready for that. I shared this example once and I was asking people how long it's been. I mean, a guy who's a commercial airline pilot said 40 hours, so it really kind of torpedoed the example. But otherwise, you've probably spent a long time don't be surprised that the Christian life is the same. We have our whole life to become like Christ, to prepare for the life to come. But we must do that. We start there. But of course, we're not meant to do it alone. The second area is mutual discipleship. The Bible is filled with what we call one another commands, the things that we should do for and to one another, all summed up in the idea that we should love one another. And so we want you to see you investing in others and allowing us to invest in you. You know, the Bible calls us to spur one, of the, one another on to love and good deeds. Now, if you've ever been a horse, you probably haven't, but if you ever have been, it hurts to get spurred. So sometimes growing in Christ hurts just a little bit, but we're called to, to love one another, even when it's a little painful. Third, to acts of service and ministry. Everybody here who's a Christian has been gifted by God to serve the body of Christ, to serve around you. And if you're not, you're not just hurting yourself, you're hurting all of us. God has uniquely skilled and gifted you and given you a life that nobody else has lived to bring so much to the body of Christ. And when you don't, because the Bible describes us as one body, it's just like my foot just walking off and saying, I'm not a part of this anymore. Now, I can't walk with two good feet. I stumble constantly. So if I had no foot, I would really be in trouble. It's the same way. When you refuse to participate in the life of this body, you're hurting the rest of us. So serve, minister. Fourth, a missional lifestyle, which just means taking the gospel to wherever you are. Are. And we want to equip you to do that, to be confident and comfortable in doing it. And finally, 
giving financially. As Jamie has shared, thank you so much for how you have given faithfully to the Our Share Future campaign. Praise God for his blessing there. But it's not it's not just about money. It's about saying, Lord, we see the work you're doing and we want it to continue. We want to worship you this way and all that we have is yours. Because as First Corinthians asks us, what do you have that you did not receive? And so we do that. So this morning, every morning, we want to help you as you press on towards Jesus. So if you have questions about this, if you want help, please come and talk to Jamie. Come and talk to the elders, to the staff, to me. We would be overjoyed to share this with you. And we don't care where you've been. We don't care what your life has looked like. We want to help you forget what lies behind and help you to press forward. And one way we do that every week here at Redeemer is by taking the Lord's Supper together at the close of every service. So if you're new to or just visiting Redeemer this morning, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we do this when we gather in imitation of Christ and in obedience to his command. So if you are here today and you are a Christian in good standing at a Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming church, we invite you to participate in the Lord's table. But if that's not you this morning, if that's not where you are, it's okay. We're still very glad that you are here, but we would ask that you let the bread and the cup pass because 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29 says this, whoever therefore eats the blood or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So for that reason, I would urge you as the elements are passed, to spend this time in prayer asking the Lord to examine your heart, examine your life, to reveal any sin of which you need to repent, and to prepare you for this act of worship. So let's do that now.